Okay, here's a book called Generations, The History of America's Future from 1584 to 2069 by William Strauss and Neil Howe. And it looks like the copyright's from 1991. It looks like here, but I got this book because it hadn't been, uh, this kind of uh, study hadn't been screwed with yet at this point. So things have changed over the years uh, to fit, you know, different agendas and ideas. So I'd like to take a step back and see what we learned differently than younger people are learning today. So anyway, so it's a book from 1991. All right, here's a preface. Uh, in a recent survey, new college graduates listed history as an academic subject whose lessons they found of least use in their daily affairs. In part, this reflect shows the shows me pragmatism of today's rising generation. Yet as America embarks on the 1990s, people of all ages feel a disconnection with history. Many have difficulty placing their own thoughts and actions, even their own lives, in any larger story. As commonly remembered, history is all about presidents and wars, depressions and scandals, patternless deeds done by people with power, far beyond what the typical reader can ever hope to wield. If history seems of little personal relevance today, then what we do today seems of equal irrelevance to our own lives and to the lives of others tomorrow. Without a sense of trajectory, the future becomes almost random. So why not live for today? What's to lose? During the 1970s and 1980s, this today, this today fixation has rumbled throughout the American society, top to bottom. Our presidents and congresses have expressed a broad-based preference for consumption over savings, debt over taxes, and the needs of elders over the needs of needs of children. In our private lives, we have seen the same attitude reflected in parents come first, family choices. Pa parents come first, family choices. Adults only condos. Leverage Wall Street buyouts and the live fast, die young world of inner city drug dealers. All these actions are more of a piece than many of many of us may feel comfortable admitting. We offer this book as an antidote. More fundamentally, we hope to give our reader a perspective of human affairs unlike anything available in the usual history and social sciences text. Once you have read this book, we expect you. We expect you will reflect differently on much that you see in yourself, your family, or your community, and the nation. You may understand better how the great events of American history, from wars to relig religious upheavals, have affected the life cycles of real people, famous and common, in high political office and the ordinary families. You may also gain a better sense of how you and your peers fit into this ongoing story of American civilization. A long and twisting human drama that offers each generation a special role. Appreciate, appreciating the rhythm of this drama will enable you to foresee mo most of what the future holds for your own life cycle, as well as what it holds for your children and grandchildren after your own time has passed. This book presents the history of the future by narrating a recurring dynamic and generational behavior that seems to determine how and when we participate as individuals in social change or social upheaval. We say, in effect, that this dynamic re repeats itself. This is reason enough to make history important. For if the future replays the past, so too must the past anticipate the future. We retell a favorite old tale in a brand new way. The full story of America from the Puritans forward presented along with what we call the generational diagonal, the life cycle course, childhood through old age, lived by the discrete 
birth year groups we defined as generations. We identify 18 such generations through uh, four centuries of American history, dating back to the New World colonists. Among these generations, we find important recurring personality patterns, uh, specifically four types of pure personalities that have, in all but one case, followed each other in a fixed order. We call this repeating pattern the generational cycle. The cycle lies at the heart of our story and offers. We believe an important explanation for why the story of American unfolds as it does. Read together, our 18 generational biographies present a history of the American life cycle and a history of cross-generational relationships. These relationships between parents and children, between midlife leaders and youths coming of age, between elders and heirs, depict history as people actually live it, from growing up in their teens to growing old in their 70s. One of these 18 American generations, of course, is yours. All but the very oldest or the very youngest of our contemporary readers belong to one of these following four generations. The GI um, generation, which is born from 1901 to 1924. Then there's the silent generation, which was born from 1925 to 1942. Then there's the boomer generation, which is born from 1943 to 1960. And then the 13er generation, born from 1961 to 1981. The 13er generation, I guess it's the 13th generation uh, of America. In this book, we describe what we call the pure personality of your generation. You may share many of these attributes, some of them, or almost none of them. Every generation includes all kinds of people, yet we explain in part one, you and your peers share the same age location in history, and your generation's collective mindset cannot help but influence you, whether you agree with it or spend a lifetime battling against it. For the moment, let's suppose you share your peers' mindset. If so, here is how you might respond to the message of this book. If you are a GI from the GI uh, generation, your own collegial identity is so powerful and has left such a colossal lifelong imprint on America's political, social, and economic institutions that you tend to see older and younger generations as ineffectual facsimiles of your own. You may therefore resist our contention that other living generations are intrinsically different. But make no mistake, GIs have a distinct character. Of all four of our basic pure personalities, your civic type is probably the most crisply defined. And the boundaries separating GIs from the lost and the silent generations are among the most compelling in American history. As firm believers in public harmony and cooperative social discipline, many of you might read into this book this book's plural title, A Disturbing Message of Discord. Possessed of hubris born of youthful optimism fulfilled, perhaps you will puzzle over one of our core premises, that generations like people can relate to one another in ways which may not be mutually beneficial collectively. You GIs grew up so accustomed to being looked upon and rewarded as good, constructive, and deserving that you, have tr that you have had trouble later in life understanding how others might be viewed and treated differently and how others might view themselves differently. All aging civic generations have had this trouble, including the peers of Cotton Mather and James Blair in the late, uh, late 1720s and the peers of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison in the early 1820s. Yours is a rationalist generation. 
In the tradition of the 18th century uh, patriot scientist Benjamin Rush, civics have always come of age, believing that history does, or should, move in orderly straight lines. For much of your life cycle, this attitude brought you hope in old age. It brings you mostly despair. Over the last two decades, you have recognized that the younger generations do not display the friendliness, optimism, and community spirit you remembered in your own peers at like age. Your perceptions are correct. Younger generations do not share your strengths. Instead, they are preparing to leave behind endowments of less visible and secular nature, endowments that GIs have difficulty appreciating. As your generation loses energy, you may fear that not only your own unique virtue, but perhaps all virtue will fade with you. But there is cause, cause for hope. Our cycle suggests your special strengths will rekindle thanks ultimately to a value, values-laden nurturing style associated with much of what you dislike and what the elder Mather and Jefferson similarly disliked in younger parents and leaders. If you can resist measuring others against your own standard, you may find our generational diagonal and nonlinear cycle to be comforting ideas. So, too, might the cycle revive your interest in the nature of today's preschoolers. Their early childhood is beginning to resemble what you may remember of your own 70 or 80 years ago. Okay, so, but if you are are from the silent generation, the silent generation is born between 1925 and 1942. So if you are from the silent generation, you are part of another directed generation that comes more easily to an appreciation of the mindsets, virtues, and flaws of those born before or behind you. You need less persuasion than others to accept a typology of generations, a theory of historical oscillation, and the need for balance and diversity in any story of progress. Then again, since generation generations of your adaptive type tend to respond ambivalently to anything they comfort, you may well quarrel with our general conclusions and inquire into detail. Like the 50-ish managers of Teddy Roosevelt's melting pot, America, you may dislike the majoritarian elements of our theory, doubting whether any diverse group number numbering in the tens of millions can possibly fit into a single peer personality or a single generation. As Henry Clay once did with slave emancipation, you might try patching our new theory in your mind with other competing theories to yield a consensus or compromise perspective. In the manner of Woodrow Wilson at Versailles, you might remain undecided until you hear what the experts have to say. And in the spirit of the aging William Ellery Clanning or John Dewey, you might search for evidence to support your intuition and civilized man can. In the end, produce happy ending, as long as everyone remains open to new ideas and allow a little give and take. We can picture you puzzling over what it means to be adaptive as we define it and debating over where we set our generational boundaries. You may at times sound or feel like a GI or a boomer, but you are reaching the cusp of elderhood, having shared neither the outer triumph of your next elders nor the inner rootedness of your next juniors. 65 years after your first birth year, no members of your generation had yet been elected president. That bothers you. Though you would be the first to admit that an an instinct for leadership may not be your generation's strong suit. 
like the midlife peers of William Byrd uh, II and Alexander Spotswood of the Rococo Williamsburg drawing room, your generation has a highly refined taste for process and an expertise that ties other people in knots. Yet in your very humility, your sense of irony, even the creative tension of your elusive hunt for Darcis, your generation has done more than any since Louis Brandes to bring a sense of non-judgmental fairness and open-mindedness to American society. Your pluralist antenna, so generously directed everywhere else, have yet to focus on your own offspring, who have so far been mostly a source of disappointment and worry. Much as the Trumanesque children were to the Wilsonesque parents, you had hoped your 13er children would grow up kind and socially sensitive. Instead, their generation is turning out too hardened for your taste. You suspect maybe your peers did something wrong as parents, but you are not about to give up searching for ways to make amends. But if you're a boomer, born between 1943 and 1960, if you're of this boomer generation, you know yours is, beyond doubt, an authentic generation. You will recognize the generational boundaries separating you from others. And if born uh, from 1943 through 1945, you are probably delighted that someone finally put you where you always knew you belonged. Unlike the GIs, you have no trouble recognizing how other generations have personalities very different from your own. Unlike the silent generation, you have never imagined being anything other than what you are. But the great comfort you derive from your own identity is precisely what makes your generation troubling in the eyes of others. Like the peers of John Winthrop or Ralph Waldo Emerson, you perceive that within your cir circle lies a unique vision, a transcendent principle, a moral acuity more wondrous that, and extensive than anything ever seemed in history of mankind. True, like a Herman Melville or an H.L. Mencken, you often loathe the narcissism, and self-satisfaction of your peers. But that, too, is an important trait of your idealist generation type, possessing unyielding opinions about all issues. You judge your own peers no less harshly than you judge your elders and juniors. Either way, you may well appreciate that, that the time has come to move the boomer discussion beyond the hippie-turned-yuppie boomer-hypocrite theme. Stripped to its fundamentals, your generation of rising adults is no more hypocritical than Thoreau at Walden Pond or Jefferson Davis during his seven-year retreat in the Mississippi woods. You may feel some disappointment in the Dan Quayles and Donald Trumps who have among your first age mates to climb the life's pyramid, along with some danger in the prospect of boomer presidents and boomer-led congresses farther down the road. Watching uh, Franklin Pierce and Stephen Douglas, the peers of Lincoln and Lee, felt much the same trepidation about their own generation with reason, as history soon demonstrated. You may see in your peers a capacity for a great wisdom, terrible tragedy, or perhaps just an unsuff unsufferable pomposity. Over the centuries, idealist generations like yours have produced more than their share of all three. Having lived just half a life cycle, you probably find it hard to imagine that your generation may someday produce strong-willed leaders on a par with a Sam Adams or a Benjamin Franklin, a Douglas MacArthur or a Franklin Roosevelt. That's not surprising. Idealist generations, quite the reverse of civic generations. Typically, exert their most decisive influence on history late in life. 
To understand how this happens, you need to step outside your inner absorption, take a look at like-minded ancestors, and understand the fateful connection between the idealist life cycle and the larger flow of events. Perhaps you already sense that your boomer peers, for all their narcissism and parallel play, will someday leave a decisive mark on civilization quite unlike anything they have done up to now. Your intuition is correct. History suggests they will. Okay, now, if you are a 13er born between 1961 and 1981, if you are a 13er, we can imagine Acosta's reception. Here we are, two writers from a generation you don't especially like, laying bare your generation's problems and affixing a label with an ominous ring. Back in the 1920s, Gertrude Stein, then in her mid-40s, did much the same to her 30-ish juniors. And the name she chose, The Lost Generation, was just perverse enough to catch on with the rising culture elite. You may not like being lumped in with the mall rats, drug gangs, and the collegians who can't find Chicago on a map, but you will grudgingly admit that's how others often see you. No doubt you have already noticed that the recent barrage of books and articles declaring that people your age are dumb, greedy, and soulless. You may find solace in learning that several earlier American generations have also perceived neg negatively almost from birth, for example, the peers of George Washington, Jan ha John Hancock, and Patrick Henry, along with Ulysses Grant and uh, George Patton. You, may not, uh, you, may, you might not mind striking others as bad, knowing full well that low expectations is a game you can play to your advantage. You know the odds. Maybe like John D. Rockefeller, you will hit the jackpot, or else, like a gold rusher of the 40, or gold rush 49er, you will go bust trying. Win or lose, you're not looking for testimonials, or for that matter, any grand collective mission. When you notice that we've made your generation an equal partner to all the others in our saga, you might be half pleased, half alarmed. To be an equal partner means history might be counting on you, and you are not quite ready for that. Our 13er reader knows perfectly well what your elders seldom admit. Yours is an ill-timed life cycle. You experienced the consciousness revolution of the late 1960s and the 1970s from child's perspective. And like the Louisa May Alcott, you had to grow up fast to survive in a world of parental self-immersion or even ne neglect. You were tired of gauzy talk about Woodstock, born-again ex-hippies, and TV shows full of boomers too busy whining about problems to solve them. Your generational consciousness is on the rise. You may already sense that it is just a matter of time before you and your peers snap into cultural focus. And, as Sinclair Lewis did with snooty babbits, start trimming the sails of your smug next elders. You take justifiable pride in your pragmatism. But watch out. It has its limits. A popular 13er put down is that's history translated to mean that's irrelevant wrong we urge you to look eyeball to eyeball with other reactive types especially at those generations like captain kidd's benedict arnold's william quantrill's and al capone's whose entire life cycle was spent dodging and the criticism and mistrust of others they produced many of America's toughest leaders, most effective warriors, most scathingly uh, perceptive artists, and, of course, most successful entrepreneurs. But so, too, did many of their members burn out young, turn traitor, endure heaps of blame, and suffer a difficult old age. Regardless of your generation or 
current phase of life. Chances are you share the commonly held view that your own peers' recent life cycle experiences are the norm. In each case, you may believe that other generations could or should think and behave like you at whatever phase of life you have recently completed. If a GI generation, you probably regard retirement as a natural opportunity to stay active within your own community and recap the economic rewards of a lifetime of purposeful labor. If a silent generation, you may believe that reaching the age of 40 or 50 inevitably triggers a midlife passage, an abrupt and liberating personality shift. If a boomer, if you're a boomer generation, you may see spiritual self-discovery as, as the very essence of being a 25-year-old. If a 13er, if you're a 13er, you may find it hard to imagine how any teenager would not instinctively reduce such issues of courtship schooling, and career choice to their practical matter-of-fact essentials. Whatever your peer group, you feel that something is out of joint when your next juniors turn out differently. Let us reassure you, Americans have felt much of the same sense of generational warp for centuries. By nature, we all want to believe in an unvarying life cycle. This makes life more predictable and hence more manageable. That is not, however, how generations work. It isn't true in the early 1990s. It wasn't true during the circa 1970 generation gap, nor was it true in 1950 or 1930, nor for that matter in 1830 or 1730 or 1630. Much of the stress in cross-generational relationships arises when people of different ages expect others to behave in ways their peer personalities won't allow. Plainly, this happens between GIs and boomers in, late, uh, in the late 1960s. It has recently started happening again, albeit with a less noise and fanfare, this time between boomers and 13ers. Poll today's colleges and ask them which generation they like the, the least. Then ask 40-ish professionals which generation they think has the least to offer. The answer in each case will be the other. Boomers and 13ers are coming to re recognize how unlike each other they are. As yet, neither side realizes that this personality clash will endure and almost certainly sharpen over the next decade. This is nothing new. For centuries, idealist generations have inevitably come of age, mounting a highly symbolic attack against their aging civic elders and have later entered midlife engaging in a bitter conflict with their reactive next juniors. No other generational type shares this life cycle pattern on, of conflict. Civics, for, for instance, have typically found late-in-life battles with their 20-ish children so difficult because they could recall nothing like it from their own youth, while adaptives have been spared from our over-generational conflict through their lives, often to their inner frustration. One of our purposes in writing this book is to, is to dispel the illusion of generational sameness. In doing so, we hope to, pr to promote more reciprocal understanding and more mutual respect among the very unalike generations alive today. The timing and authorship of this book may indeed reflect the workings of the cycle we describe. Many have told us this book could only have been written by boomers, which indeed your authors are, from the 1947 and 1951 cohorts. True, some of the finest generational biographies ever published, including Passages and Private Lives, have been written by silent authors from the silent generation. 
Yet boomers remain the 20th century's most generation conscious peer group, one that has overwhelmed all thinking about subject over the past few decades. As boomers come to dominate the media, the word generation is today being heard more often in news, entertainment, and advertising than any time since the late 1960s. We attribute this in part to renewed stirrings of boomer spiritualism in public life and to the present location of boomers at the center of multi-generational family trees. Your authors know that feeling quite well. At one, uh, at one end of our families, we see surviving parents and step-parents. All of the Generation GIs are uh, all faring very well in comparison with what we remember of the lost elders of our youth, and all looking upon the current drift of America with a mixture of public concern and private detachment. In the other end of our millennial generation, children born in the mid-80s, about whose future adult Americans of all ages are beginning to worry. Between us, we have four children, two 13ers and two millennials, perhaps more to come. Like many of our peers, we recognize that an instinct for teamwork and cooperation, something that the Generation GI have always had and boomers came of age rejecting, may well make sense for the new millennials just now coming on stage. Both of us have separately written on generational topics for many years. In quite different ways, we each came across what we call the generational diagonal. Our earlier books focused mainly on boomers and GIs, Strauss and the Vietnam War, Howes on federal entitlements programs. We wondered why these two, generational, these two generations developed such entirely different ways of looking at the world. GIs seeing themselves, even in old age, as uniquely productive. Boomers seeing themselves, even in youth, as uniquely gaseous. We were fascinated by the curious 1970s era re uh, resolution of the generation gap between them, an implicit deal in which GIs achieved economic independence and spent the post-Vietnam fiscal peace div uh, dividend almost entirely on themselves, while boomers asserted their social independence. In each case, this came at a cost. Aging GIs gave up cultural and spiritual authority, and boomers abandoned any realistic prospect of matching their elders, late-in-life economic rewards. We wondered what it was about the very different growing-up experience of GIs and boomers that prompted such behavior, and whether any earlier American generations had ever acted along the same lines. We discovered that they had. As we stretched our search for analogs back to the centuries, panoramic outline of our generational saga began em emerging. Again and again, this life cycle approach to history revealed a similar and reoccurring pattern, one that coincided with many of the well-known rhythms pulsating through the American history. We found ourselves with new answers to old riddles that have puzzled historians. Why, for example, great public emergencies in America seem to arrive every 80 or 90 years and why great, great spiritual upheavals arrive roughly halfway in between. If we had, in fact, discovered a cycle, we knew that proof had to lie in its predictive possibilities. We decided then and there to write a last chapter of the future. Not many academics take well to crystal ball theories of history, but without predictions, what Karl Popper once called falsifiability, any roadmap of history ends just where the reader begins to find it interesting. 
in advancing his own cycle theory about alternating eras of liberal activity and conservative quiescence, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. has made some very date-specific predictions. For example, that America is now poised for a sharp pivot back toward the 1960s stylish uh, style activism. While we harbor doubts about that prognosis, for reasons we explain in Chapter 6, we credit Schlesinger for pioneering the cycle approach to American history and for giving his reader the measure by which his theory can be tested. The same is true for our forecast. Time will surely tell. The events of the next few years will not explain much. Ten years will reveal something. Twenty years, quite a bit. And forty years will close the case, one way or the other. Anyone who claims to possess a vision of the future must present it with due modesty, since no mortal can possibly foresee how fate may twist and turn. Readers who encounter this book 50 years from now will no doubt find chapter uh, 13 odd in much of its detail. But it is not our purpose to predict specific events. Rather, our purpose is to explain how the underlying dynamic of generational change will determine which sorts of events are most likely. No one, for example, can foretell the specific emergency that will confront America during what we call the crisis of 2020. Holy smokes, did you hear that? This is a book from 1991. Let me read that sentence one more time. No one, for example, can foretell the specific emergency that will confront America during what we call the crisis of 2020, nor, of course, the exact year in which the crisis will find its epicenter. What we do claim our cycle can predict is that during the late 2010s and early 2020s, American generations will pass deep into a crisis era constellation and mood, and that, as a consequence, the nation's public life will undergo a swift and possibly revolutionary transformation. Holy smokes. The sum total of our predictions does not present an idealized portrait of the America's future, but rather an honest depiction of where the generational cycle says the nation is headed. When reading chapter 13, most readers will feel mixed emotions about what we foresee happening over the next several decades. Whatever your values or politics, you will surely find some things that please you and others that do not. You may also be surprised to find that only passing mention of many subjects, from space-age technology to the shifting fortunes of political parties, that weigh so large in the most speculations about the future, in our view, the timeless dynamic of human relationships come first and matters most. While others may describe the technology which, with which America will send a manned spacecraft to the planet Mars, for example, we tell you something else. When America's leaders and voters will want this flight to happen, why, which generation will fly it, and why and how the nation will feel about it at the time and afterward. We acknowledge this to be an ambitious book with wholly new interpretations of important moments in American history. From, from the persecution of Salem witches to the rise of the Wall Street yuppies, we admit, of course, that the generational cycle cannot explain everything. Where history so easily compartmentalized, it would lose not just its mystery, but also much of its hope and passion and triumph. What we do insist is that the generations offer an important perspective of human events, from the great deeds of the public leaders to the day-to-day -day lives of ordinary people. We urge those who believe in other theories of history, or in no theory at all, to consider how ours can at times explain the otherwise 
unexplainable. Many readers may well remain unpersuaded about the cycle, at least until more time passes. To the skeptical historians in particular, we suggest you suspend your disbelief long enough to take a hard look at the generational diagonal. Historians seldom write biographies and all too often recount events without the life cycle perspective of what we call the people moving through time. Generations and history share an important two-way relationship, not just in America and not just in the modern era. In part two, we describe the pure personalities of America's 18 generations. We cannot always feature a totally representative sample of the population. Sometimes, for example, we had to admit that the attention given to women and minorities, either because not as much is known about them, or because we wanted to refer to actors and events that most readers would recognize. Yet, while the generation is, almost by definition, a majoritarian social unit, the concept has much to say about sex roles and about issues of class and race, or race. No comparison of the generation GIs with the boomers or the glorious with the awakeners, can overlook the stunning con contrast in their re retrospective attitudes towards femininity and masculinity. Likewise, no comparison of the silent generation with the 13ers or the progressives with the lost generation can make sense without mentioning their contrasting opinions about ethnic or racial pluralism. The generational cycle indeed raises important questions about when and how certain racial, ethnic, and women's issues arise. Every major period of racial unrest, from the Stono Uprising of 1739 to Nat Turner's Rebellion of 1831, from W.E.B. Du Bois' Black um, Consciousness Movement of the early, early 20th century to the long, hot summers of the late 1960s, has started during what we call an awakening, constellation of generational types. Similarly, the widest gaps between acceptable male and female sex roles have taken place during an outer-driven constellation, where we consider these issues especially important to our story. We discuss them. But this book is mainly about generations as units, not subgroups within them. We encourage specialists among our readers, whatever their background, to shed more light on the component pieces of the generational puzzle. We would, de we would be delighted to see others write on the generational history of, the, of any ethnic group, for example, or about the generational dynamic behind the changes in technology, the arts, or family life. In fact, the biography of any single generation could easily be expanded to book length. Apart from our own capsule summary of the GI of the generation GIs, no one has ever written even a short biography of that generation. Is there a generation GI somewhere who will? Anybody of that age that's still alive that wants to write about it? Go ahead, do it. Much work remains to be done in this barely tapped field. We invite debate about our interpretation of social moments our generational boundaries, and our pure personality descriptions. This book may be the first word on many of these subjects. We hope it will not be the last. In particular, we encourage experts familiar with our nationalities, from China to Eastern Europe, the Middle East to Latin America, to examine dy the dynamic of generational change in societies other than our own. Such inquiry might identify deviations in the generational cycle like America's Civil War anomaly, and suggests how our theory of generations might be refined to account for the full range of human experience. 
We hope to persuade specialists among our readers that the study of, of generational and life cycle behavior is a major importance. Those who assemble data can help by sorting them around birth cohorts as well as around fixed age brackets. And by repeating old polls taken one or more generations earlier, to update cohort and age bracket responses. Historians can similarly help the study of generations by offering cohort-specific information whenever possible. To aid the research of others, we are providing extensive bi- uh, biblio- bibliographic notes and an Appendix B, a summary of a new data we have compiled on each generation's numer- numerical res- representation in Congress and state governorships. Each of the 18 generational biographies required substantial research into not just the history, but also the historiography of each era. Not just what happened, but how and why historians have interpreted events as they did. Accordingly, this book posed unique research problems. There were no shortcuts. Our efforts to piece together separate generational life cycles were impeded by the way many historians tend to blur cohorts' experience. The typical chapter on the history of childhood, for instance, focuses mainly on linear change, blending together experiences over time spans as long as a century. To discover what happened to the specific cohort groups required laborious detective work, sometimes pouring through many articles or books just to confirm an observation covered here in less than a sentence. Whatever our challenge, we are, we were aided immeasurably by the man, many fine social hist- histories published over the past two decades, especially the phase of life histories about childhood, adolescence, or the old age. We have also been blessed by the recent research findings of a small but growing number of historians and social scientists who concentrate, who concentrate specifically on cohort analysis. Had we or anyone else written this book as re- recently as 1970, it would have been far poorer in texture and detail. We ask our reader to approach this book in the same manner we came to the subject, inductive, as a gradual discovery of something very new. Yes, we sometimes use terms you may find unfamiliar at first, like cohorts and spiritual awakenings when necessary. We even invent our own terms, including typologies of generations and of constellation eras. Our glossary defines all these terms, for easy reference. We urge our reader to enliven in these concepts with your own experience and imagination. Whether or not you agree with our vision of America's future, we hope you will find our approach useful in clarifying your own view of the next decade and century. Whatever your generation, the GI generation, the silent generation, the boomers, the 13ers, you will learn, as we have, how every generation has its own strengths and weaknesses its own opportunities for triumph and tragedy. Yet there are implicit measures here, for example, about how each generation should apply its unique gifts for the benefit of its heirs. But our our object here is less to judge than to understand. In the words of the great German scholar Leopold van Rank, we weighed so many old world generations on the scales of history. Before God, all the generations of humanity appear equally justified. In any generation, he concluded, real moral greatness is the same as in any other.